Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 1:26 through 2:3. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that God had finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work and the, all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. What a joy to celebrate baptism this morning. So good to, to see God at work in our church, in our city, in our world. Man, it's been, it was good. Um, Let the record state that it's already quarter after 11. I'm just saying that. Um, So it's already quarter after 11, but that's not going to affect my sermon at all. So just, so when you think I'm going late, I didn't go late. We just had a lot of baptisms. All right. That's that's what's going on. Now, um, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for myself as well. Um, Yesterday, I had a pretty much Pretty great Saturday for the most part. Just kind of crushed the Saturday. Um, got up, did donuts with dad like we normally do. Took the kids, did donuts. Came home, did the chores, mowed, got the grass mowed, put in some new bushes, did some landscaping, all the things. The kids are out roller skating, having a good time, making some kind of choreographed thing to High School Musical. They were loving it. The girls were having a blast. And we had dinner outside. We grilled, had dinner outside. Just awesome. Then I was like, you know what? Feeling real, you know, I'm like, dad life. I'm, we're winning. We're crushing this thing. Took the kids to Sonic, got them little slushies and ice cream, came home. It was about 8.15. <sighs> Crushed the day. The girls go outside. They're going to do a little bit more skating. And then five minutes later, my second youngest daughter, uh, Nora, comes in. Ah! And you know, at first I'm like, oh, you're okay. Just sit on the couch. Just, I know you fell. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. And then, and then a minute later, I look and I see a big old lump. And I'm oh, no. And uh, so we ended up about 8.30 last night having to go to the ER. She broke her wrist. We were there for like three hours, you know. And so we get back. So it's been one of those, you know, one of those days that you reminded what it's like to have five kids, right? And nothing quite goes according to plan. Then this morning, I, or last night, I get home and I'm trying to think through all my stuff at about midnight, what I have to take care of this morning. Plug my iPad in, do all my stuff. Get up this morning, go grab my iPad, unplug it. It's at 3%. I'm like, no, it's been one of those days. Thankfully, we're good now, but I'm just giving you a lot of excuses. You know, so if this sermon sucks, it's, that's, that's why, okay? That's why, all right? It's clearly not my fault or my preparation. I just had a bad day, okay? So let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. 
Father God, man, thank you for all the blessings that you've already given us this day. The blessings to come together and sing and worship you. The blessings that we see of you bringing people from spiritual death to spiritual life. Saving people, bringing them into this family. Thank you for the testimonies. Thank you for all that. And, and thank you now for your word. God, this is a gift that you have revealed yourself to us. We would stumble around like blind men in the dark if you hadn't revealed yourself to us in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus. And so we need you to open our eyes and let us see truth, let us see reality. We need you to straighten out what's crooked in us, uh, bring every thought, make every thought in our minds captive and obedient to Christ. I pray that you would help me that I, I'm a sinner saved by your grace, and so I need you to help me this morning to think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. Would it be all of you and none of me? Would, you, would your people hear your voice this morning? And they would, would they receive it as good news? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> all right, so we are in a sermon series that we're calling Fundamentals, where we're going through the fundamentals of our faith and the fundamentals of um, our church at Sacred City Church here. And one of the fundamentals is we believe at this church that our rhythms, our behaviors flow out of our identities, okay? So here's what I mean by our identities. The, the work of Jesus on our behalf, Jesus saved us through his death and resurrection, and that does something to us. Jesus makes us new, Jesus gives us new identities. When we receive those new identities through grace and by faith, we are now family, we're missionaries, we're servants and learners. This is who we are. And here's what's cool about that. Once you know who you are, the rest of your life flows out of that identity. Okay, so we don't begin with what should I do? We begin with who am I? If I'm family, I'm gonna live as part of the family of God. If I'm missionary, I'm gonna live on mission, right? That's just how things go. Now, what's interesting about this reality is this is the way Christianity was meant to work. There was not meant to be a sacred part of our life, one hour on Sunday morning, right? Or missional community night, or only when we read the Bible, when we pray, that's when we're being religious. And then a secular part of our life. This is just my normal life and has nothing to do with God. Most people in our country, their religion looks like that. It's bifurcated. If there's a dichotomy, right? It's here's my Jesus time or my religion and here's my real everyday life. Christianity blows that distinction out of the water. It says your whole life must be lived before the face of God. Everything matters in your life, okay? So when we receive the identity of Christians and family, missionary, servant, learners, that's gonna change, listen, everything about our life. The way we do everything is gonna change. And so what we're working through week by week is we're calling them rhythms. Things that everyone does in every culture, right? So they're just normal stuff. They're done in every culture. They're timeless. None of these are fads, right? And we're, we're trying to learn what it looks like to live as a gloriously normal Christian in our world. Okay, that's, that's the goal. They should, all these rhythms should make sense to, sense to you. And they should kind of resonate with you as a human. We call it living a normal life with gospel intentionality. So having the gospel shape everything in our life. So far, we've studied the rhythms of eating. That was a good one, right? Listening. And last week, we looked at celebrating. Today, we're going to look at the rhythm we call recreate, okay? Now, you can say that word two ways. One, 
To recreate something is to create it again. It's to reenact its original creation. But to recreate is to do something that is restful and enjoyable. You might be creating something, but you're actually enjoying it. Maybe, you, you know, you're a banker, you know, six days a week, and then on your weekends, you like to do woodworking in your garage. That's recreation, right? For me, when I ride my mountain bike, it's both hard work and thoroughly enjoyable. It's physically demanding, but it's restful to my soul. So when we talk about recreate, we're talking about both of those definitions, to create something again or to create good things, and also to rest and enjoy what we've created. To recreate is to work like God did in Genesis 1 and 2. There we see that God both creates beautifully and he rests from his work to enjoy what he's made. We see a combination of work and rest, labor and enjoyment. God purposefully works six days and rests one. And God's work shows us that he doesn't just create in a utilitarian fashion. Thank God he had more colors than black and white, right? Like God creates... He's, he has an overabundance of imagination. Let's say it like that. He has a designer's eye and a penchant for creativity. He's an aesthetic. He's concerned about beauty. And he doesn't just create things out of a sense of duty or drudgery. God goes overboard with colors, shapes, sizes, flavors, and designs, right? Think about that. The sun sets almost the same every night, but the colors and the shapes and the beauty of the sky is literally unique every single night. Every single night, you can walk out on your porch and go, whoa, that's the best yet, right? And you walk in, whoa, right? Or a blood moon, what? Right, that's because he's creative. Like think about all the, just think about the colors, Right? As your kids grow, you, you learn, you know, you first get them that pack, there's like 12 crayons in there. Then it's like 24. And then it's like 48. And then it's like 126. And it's like, this one's gonna last you till next Christmas. Right? And they're all broken around all over the floor. Right? Why? Because there's, there's a spectrum of colors that we could go on and on and on and on and talk about. If you've ever watched Planet Earth HD on the Discovery Channel, or my favorite, if you haven't seen this, you need to go find it today, The Riot and the Dance. It's called The Riot and the Dance. It's created by a Christian filmmaker and a Christian um, biologist. And so he narrates it, not from a secular worldview, but he narrates everything from, a from the creativity of God. Like, God created this thing. It's awesome. You need to go find it. But if you've ever watched either one of these shows, you realize that God is an artist, who loves creating the most unique and stunning creatures from glow-in-the-dark fish that never see the light of the sun, right? To birds so extravagant, they make Sia's outfits look normal, okay? <laughs> you look at these birds and you're like, God was just playing. He was just playing. I'm gonna make, some of their mating, the mating dances, you're like, oh, oh, go ahead, it's hilarious. 
It might be the understatement of the universe to say that God is creative. He's the definition of creativity. He is the original artist. And when he made us in his image, he made us to create as well. Now, we cannot create the way he did. He created, ex nihilo is the Latin term, and it means out of nothing. So God, out of his, just the sheer imagination of his mind, spoke everything into existence. He created that way. We can't create that way. We take the raw materials that he's given us and we form and create things that are good, true, and beautiful. That's what we are called to do as co-creators or under-creators. <clears throat> now let's go to Genesis chapter one and look and see what God did with our first parents, how he made them. We're gonna look at Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then God said, let us, okay, who's us? Whoa, in the beginning is God. God's saying, let us. God is one, and yet he exists in three persons. Yeah, it's like that, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. At the center of the universe is a creative community, right? That's what's at the center of the universe. Relationship at the center of the universe. And we are made in his image. Keep reading. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So this word dominion is kind of like if you go, if I'm leaving for the day and I ask you to, or leaving for a week on vacation, I, let, I ask you to stay at my house. I give you dominion over my house. I want you to keep things I don't want you to burn the house down, that's for sure. I want you to keep things going, keep things operating, keep the, the for me, I got, keep the chickens fed, keep the dog fed, keep the cat fed, you know, all of these, all of these things. That's what it means to have dominion. You're like a vice regent over a property. Okay, let's keep reading. Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, here it is, look, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. Pause. This command isn't just a command to make a lot of babies. That is part of the command, but there's the command to be fruitful and multiply and also the command to subdue creation and have dominion over it. Look at the verse. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay? So multiply and exercise dominion. So here we see a few things. Number one, God made us in his image. Okay? Two, part of what that means is seen in what he's created us to do. Our vocation in life is meant to, he gave us dominion over all of the earth. That's what he gave Adam and Eve, dominion over all the earth. Three, we are told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to subdue it and have dominion over it. This is called by theologians, the cultural mandate, okay? Here, what is the cultural mandate? We were created by God to create we were created by God to have dominion. We were created by God to create good culture that is meant to fill the earth. Listen, Adam and Eve were not created just to sit around 
and sing kumbaya all day. They were not created just to sit up, sing worship songs. They were not created just to glorify God by just over and over telling him how awesome he is. They were created to glorify God by creating good things that would bless the earth. That means Adam and Eve were created and called by God to create, here it is, a God-honoring culture in the garden. And look, to spread that culture around the world. That means they were to create instruments to play music. They were to write songs and poetry. They were to build homes. And then as they multiplied cities and then nations and extend the kingdom of God, extend the blessings of the garden all over the face of the earth. They were meant and called by God to create technology, to extend their dominion over the earth, to learn how to get the land to produce more crops. They were to build rocket ships to go to the moon and teach their children to love God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength. And all of this work was meant to be done under the watchful and loving and approving gaze of the master creator, God himself. That means as they invented things and created things, God got, took pleasure in them doing that and he would sit back and go, oh, a tractor, amazing. Painted green, you can sell a lot of those. <laughs> right, and he just was like, yes, do it, make more. You took that fish and you put them spices with that fish. You didn't even cook the fish and you wrapped it up like that. And Oh, that's, that's good stuff, eat that. That's culture, make it, enjoy it. God enjoyed his creation, creating good culture and spreading that culture around the world. Now, what that also means is all of that work was the Lord's work. All of that work was sacred because it was done under, in front of the face of God. Now, when I say, when someone says to me today, I feel like I'm called to do the Lord's work. Usually what they mean is I, I'm called to preach the gospel. I'm called to be a pastor. But that's not the Lord's work the way it was defined in the beginning. The Lord's work was anything. You want to be a cobbler? That means you make shoes. You want to be a blacksmith? You want to build technology? You want to, you know, figure out DNA? You want to do all, whatever it is that you want to do. You want to paint? You want to be a stay-at-home mom? All of that is the Lord's work if it's done un, in, under the, the loving gaze of the Father and done in his way. It's all the Lord's work. It means all of that work was sacred. Every profession was religious and sacred because the work was done as worship unto God. But Adam failed to have dominion. He failed to exercise dominion. When Satan entered the garden, and more than likely people that read this story, they think he slithered into the garden. I don't think he slithered into the garden. I think he walked into the garden more than likely as a very beautiful angel. And convinced Adam to sin against God because when, when Satan was cursed, he said he was going to slither on the ground. The snake was going to slither on the ground. If he already did that, why, that's not part of the curse, right? So I think he probably walked in, deceived them to disobey the voice of God. And Adam fails to have dominion. He doesn't protect his wife. He doesn't drive out the serpent. So he allows bad culture to come into the garden and create sin. And then what happens? Then everything breaks because God says, if you don't, if you don't uh, obey me, everything's gonna be cursed. So then everything gets cursed in that moment. 
And now all of creation is cursed. So now, the, you know, it, it hurts to give birth. The woman's childbirth is, is cursed. It hurts, it hurts to give birth. Now the ground doesn't produce crops like it should. And so it's harder to earn a living. Now our relationships are fractured. Our relationship with God, there's a huge chasm between it. And so now I'm born in sin. I'm not born in relationship with God. Now it's difficult to have human relationships. We sin against one another. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we kill. This is why we need jails. This is why we have locks on our doors, right? So now bad culture has entered into creation. And it's infected everything. Well, when Jesus comes, he shows, one, he redeems us, he restores us, and he shows us what he's going to do at the end times, which is renew all of creation and restore all of creation and drive all of that wickedness out. But the way he's doing it right now is through this process of redemption or restoration. Right? He's taking sinful things and he's making them holy. He's making broken things whole. He's making dirty things clean. So now we have a twofold, because of that work, the work of creation and the work of redemption, we have a twofold nature to our work. We're called to create good things that honor and glorify God, and we're called to restore broken things back to their original intention. That's what we're called to do, okay? One of the things that I enjoy doing is restoring old homes. Actually, one of the things my wife really enjoys that I do is restoring old homes. She likes to buy them and give them to me to fix up. She just tells me what to do, right? Now, anytime you take something that's run down, beat up, ugly, and you restore it, you're actually showing people an analogy of the gospel itself. Jesus makes all things new even us. He's going to take this broken world and it's going to be the biggest flipper you've ever seen. He's going to flip this thing and restore it into the new heavens and the new earth. Now listen, that means the restoration of a park or a business or a home or a family or a school or a neighborhood is a picture of what Christ has already done in our hearts. The gospel comes in and takes people who are spiritually dead and he makes them alive. He takes us with all our brokenness and he restores us and he heals us. And it's also a picture of what Jesus is going to do in the new heavens, the new earth. Everything that is broken will be fixed. Everything that is ugly will be made beautiful. Everything that is marred will be spotless. Every lie will be undone as the truth sets us free forevermore. What does this mean for us? This means that creativity, beauty, restoration, and all of our work are gospel issues. What we do, nine to five, five, six, seven days a week, all of that matters to God. The gospel changes everything, even the ways we work and create culture. Now, there are a lot of people, again, who think that Christianity is only about the religious stuff. It's only the stuff that happens inside a church. It's a personal faith that's meant to give us comfort when we die, but shouldn't be brought out in the public square. That is not what the Bible teaches us. Many of you can say, well, the separation of church and state. You're right, but you're using that the wrong way. The separation of church and state that's, that we were part of our country is founded on is to keep the state 
out of matters of religion, to keep them out of our church. So the state can't tell us how to worship God, how many seats we can have in our building, what we should put on our faces when we worship God. Do you see all this stuff where this is going? The state doesn't have a right to tell that to the church. The state is supposed to be outside the church. That's what the separation of church and state is supposed to be about. God is building a kingdom and we are to create good culture as members of that kingdom. That means, let me make it simple. We are to teach truth, promote beauty, and love goodness. Teach truth, promote beauty, and love goodness. Now, let me show you how confusing this can be in many, in many of our minds and how we've even become muddled in much of our thinking. Let me ask a few questions. Is there a Christian way to make art? Is there a Christian way to make shoes? Is there a Christian way to build homes? Is there a Christian way to cook food? Is there a Christian way to run a business? Is there a Christian way to practice law? Is there a Christian way to manage stocks and investments? Is there a Christian way to change a diaper? I wonder how twisted up in your thinking you are right now. Many times, people have two answers to that. First off, they're like, no. Or they're like, well, yeah, you could make Christian art. I've seen a lot of it, right? You just draw a big cross. <laughs> Christian way to make music, just sing about Jesus. Steal some bass line from the world and then put Jesus lyrics to it. <laughs> Christian art. Is there a Christian way to make shoes? Uh, probably, right? Take them Yeezys and put a cross on them and call them Jeezys, right? <laughs> there we go. Christian shoes. Okay, that's not what we mean. That's not what we mean. But the answer to that question, all of those questions is yes, absolutely. There is a Christian way to do everything. And we've lost this. It's not by putting little crosses on whatever it is. It's not by singing only about Jesus or painting scripture verses. It's by honoring God with your work. Amen. Doing our work in God-honoring ways that are in line with the truth, that promote beauty and goodness. And so this is where it gets confusing because you can be a Christian and not doing your work in a Christian way. You can be a Christian, and when you're unethical in business, you're actually promoting a false gospel. You're not living out your Christian faith in the realm of your business, right? And so the reason many of us have gotten this idea that there's no such thing as a Christian culture anymore, there's no such thing as a Christian way of doing things, is because our culture way back has been so influenced from Christianity that everybody just kind of thought the same way. Freedom of religion? Yeah, we should have that. Freedom of religion is a good thing. That came from Christianity. You don't have that around the world. Freedom of speech? You realize we're the, one of the only countries in the world with freedom of speech. 
Why? Because Christians believe speech should not be compelled, that we are offered free grace. You can't force anybody into the kingdom. So we want to create a country and an opportunity where nobody's forcing you to believe either in Christianity or forcing you to say things you don't want to say, whatever. All of these things came down from Christianity. 50, 100 years ago, everybody believed these things. They might not be Christian, but they were so formed by a Christian worldview, they they just took them as self-evident. Well, now our culture has been infiltrated by secularism that's showing that people don't believe that anymore and they're teaching something completely false and completely contrary to what God says. Now, so we have to take every thought captive, make it obedient to Jesus. We have to make good culture wherever, whatever profession we're in, right? In God-honoring ways. Let me flesh this out for us with a big topic, a big comp- aspect of our lives, and that's education. Every one of us in here was educated in some system, in some fashion. All of our children in this room are being educated in some form and in some fashion. As Christians, we are called by God to educate our children in the ways of the Lord. We are commanded to teach our kids to love God with all their minds. Take every thought captive. How does, and with that, that doesn't mean the only thing that matters is theology. I want to put them in a school that only teaches Bible stories. No, that's not what that means. Nor does it mean you could just educate your children in a secular sort of way and just give them a theology class on top of it. That'll help. No, it means that all of our learning and all of our children's learning needs to be primarily oriented back to what God says is true, beautiful, and good. God has a different idea of what is true, beautiful, and good than our culture does. And education is not a neutral subject. Education teaches us what to love, what to think is true, beautiful, and good. It shapes our affections. It's not just filling our minds with thoughts. It's shaping our hearts in a, sort, in a certain sort of way to point us out into the world to go live a certain type of life because we're led by our loves. Augustine. Now listen, this is St. Saint, Saint Augustine. Um, he lived right at the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire. And the, the fall of the Roman Empire was one of the cataclysmic turning events of whatever you want to call it, the West, okay? The biggest empire the world has ever seen in, just imploded upon itself. And Augustine was sitting here as a pastor and as a theologian and going, okay, what's happening right now? Because Rome had been, let me just say, had been kind of taken over by Christianity. Christianity rose up in the midst of Rome. It became a state religion, all those different things. And now all of a sudden it's imploding on itself and he's trying to make sense of what's going on. And this is what Augustine says. He looks at the city of Rome and the kingdom of God and he says this, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self. He's looking at Rome Rome is founded on the love of self at the contempt of God. But the kingdom of God is founded on the love of God at the contempt of itself. What does that mean? 
Rome had finally looked in itself and said, all truth can be found right here. I can do what I want to do. I don't need God to do it. And through, and then everything came crashing down. The kingdom of God is the exact opposite. They look outside of themselves to God for truth, beauty, and goodness, and they live towards him in God-honoring ways. Now, here's the problem. I think our culture is in this type of moment right now. Our culture, our institutions are failing around us. They're crumbling around us. Why? Because secular education has divorced every subject from the creator and teaches that every person is a little God who has their own truth inside and deserves to be worshiped by others. Listen, just look at your Facebook feed. Everybody's sharing their truth. Girl, tell your truth. Listen, your truth is really a way of saying your imagination. I lived through like the 2000s. That means I went through the Twilight era. If you ever read these books, watch these movies. You know what everybody's truth was back then? They thought they were vampires. They walked around, when whoever it was, I'm team Jacob, whoever it is. I'm like, I think I'm starting to dress black, starting to wear weird stuff. I'm like, you ain't a vampire. <laughs> your truth is actually your way of saying your imagination because there is no such thing as your truth. There is only the truth. My truth might be that gravity doesn't bother me and I can float off my roof and fly and enjoy the night like Peter Pan. Guess what happens when I try to introduce my truth to the truth? That's what happens. And yet, our culture right now is built on the philosophy. The whole education system is built on the philosophy of expressive individualism. Go inside of yourself, determine who you want to be, and then express that to the world, and everyone in the world must clap and go, that's good, that's beautiful, that's right. Bizarre. I remember in the 2000s when all of my friends in high school, all these, girl, my, these girls that surrounded me in high school, they all wanted to be like 80 pounds. And they'd say, I look in the mirror and I see myself as fat. And everyone around them would go, girl, your truth is, is a lie. You are skinny, too skinny, you need to eat, right? And everyone, all the structures, all the authorities would look around and say, that's not good, that's not true, your feelings are wrong. And now we have people who their feelings, no longer it's just I'm, I'm too skinny or whatever, now it's I feel, I'm a biological male who feels like a woman. And now the authorities and the structures that are around our society go, what do you need? Hormones, surgery, mutilation, let's do it. We've went crazy. We've divorced reality from the truth. As a result, our society and our culture and our educational system teaches and promotes lies. It doesn't matter. Listen, it matters how you feel. I don't mean to say that. And if you struggle with these feelings, listen, we can talk about it. We can work through it. 
But if you're a biological male and you feel like a female, no matter what you do to your body, you will never become a woman. You won't. You might become more feminine male, but that's the best you can do. Vice versa is the same. You, a boy cannot change genders. It's a lie to even say the word. You can't. You're male and female. It called our cult. So we're, we're teaching lies, calling it truth. We're calling ugly things beautiful. You know what we need? I don't even want to... We need drag queens reading to our kindergartners. That's what we need. Drag queen story time. Oh yeah, that's good. That's good for society. It sounds great. Great plan. And we call sinful things good. Call them good. This is one major reason why our culture is literally falling apart around us. So what should Christians do? Christians need to restore a theology of work, what I'm talking about this morning. We need to recreate good culture. What does that mean for our education systems? One, it means we must be creating and building good Christian schools and colleges. Did you know most of the colleges in the United States that started over 300 years ago were Bible-proclaiming schools? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, were all Christian schools founded to train pastors and lay people to live their life to the glory of God. Harvard was named after a Christian minister. Yale was started by clergymen, pastors, and Princeton's first year of class was taught by Reverend Jonathan Dickinson. Princeton's crest still says, De sub numine vigae, which is Latin for, under God, she flourishes. Look at our city here. We have St. Ambrose, we have Augustana, Augustana, Augustine, I've already quoted him once, I'm gonna quote him again. Christians are passionate about education because no ed education forms worldview, teaches people what to love and sends them out in the world in a certain way. If you, whoever controls the educational system controls the hearts of the people. So what does that mean? You should send your kids to good Christian schools or homeschool them. Third, we should be working to restore current schools and school systems. So if you are a Christian teacher and you're teaching in the public school system, you should be working to bring renewal and restoration in your community or in that, in that school. Though you're probably gonna be swimming upstream and against a lot of lies and secular philosophy. It's gonna be really hard, but if God's called you to do it, do it with gusto. Yeah. Do it with the spirit. If you're a Christian principal, Get her, you know, bring re redemption, bring restoration. Work to restore that school. Work to restore the, the philosophy, all of the things you can. Fourth, if you're a Christian parent and you decide to send your kids to public school, you need to know that you are taking a great risk with your children. The system is designed against you as a, as a Christian parent. The things that you hold to be true as, Christian, as a Christian parent, the school system does not and they're out to undermine your authority and they want your kids to love what they say is good, to believe what they say is true and to follow their way of living. So they're trying to separate your authority from, from your ch children. That's what they're trying to do. To get their worldview 
to come to pass in our society. What that means is this. At the very least, by sending your kids to public school, you are committing to spending a lot of extra time every single week finding out what they're learning, correcting it according to God's ways, and supplementing their education to train them in a God-honoring way. That means you're literally committing, uh, we can't be in the baseball league, we can't be in the basketball league, we can't do all these things, we can't be running around with our hair on fire like every other parent in our society. We have to have a lot of time around the dinner table where we can go, what'd you learn today? Well, today, um, I had somebody who was transgender who came in and they told their story and they said that there was 10,000 genders. Dad, did you know there was 10,000 genders? Well, I ain't got time to talk about all those right now, but uh, no. What does the Bible say about gender? What do you think gender is? Is gender just a construct in your mind so you can have a plethora of them? Well, can I, if, if it's just in your mind, is race just in your mind? Can I be a, a black man? Actually, I always wanted to be since I was a little kid, to be honest. Can I be that? That's who I feel like I am. Well, no? Okay. Well, guess what? Gender is given to us. We all actually, do you know how XX chromosome or XY chromosome? Did you know about that? What biology teaches us? Now, listen. This doesn't happen when you just say, hey, kid, what'd you learn today? And they're like, nothing, right? You have to be around them a lot. You have to go on walks. You have to go on bike rides. You have to be in the van and talking to them. You have to be around the dinner table. And you have to be asking them. This is why it's so hard to fight against this because it's like jumping in the Mississippi River. After one minute, they're downstream. And you didn't know, how'd they get down there? Because everyone in their school is teaching this and believing these lies and promoting them as good. So it takes a lot of work. You know how hard it is to swim upstream the Mississippi? Don't figure that out, please. Don't test that. Very hard. Very hard. So church isn't enough. Youth group isn't enough. Your family is going to have to look a lot different than other public school families. So this is just one way. You see four ways that... that, that Christians have to bring good culture into education. Now, this is true of every single segment of our society. We bring our faith into it. When the secular culture says, no, no, keep your faith out there, don't bring it into the public square, we say, no, 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 you're bringing your faith into it, I'm bringing my faith into it. Yeah. Secularism is a faith. I'm going long. <laughs> All right. So how does the gospel shape the way I do my daily work? It changes my heart, it changes my motivation for my work, and it changes how I do my work. Whether it's being a stay-at-home mom and changing diapers, that's gospel-centered work too. Showing one-way love to your children, bringing order out of the chaos of that home that happens every day, that's good gospel-centered work. Okay, okay. so God gives us the rhythm of work and rest as well. This is important for us because the first one, some of us might be bent towards laziness and we don't wanna get out in the world and create good culture and make good things. And so the gospel calls us, get out there and do something, make something happen. You let your faith inform everything you do out in the world, right? But now this one, if you're bent more like me, some of us, we get so obsessed with making good stuff and creating good culture and renewing and restoring that we make it into an idol and we'll work ourselves to death. 
And so God says, oh, I gave you a rhythm to work, but I also gave you a rhythm to rest. Look at chapter two, or Genesis chapter two, verses one through three. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here it is. God worked six days and he rested one. How well do you rest from your work and worship God? Now, I know. You don't have time. There's too much to do. You've got projects upon projects and way, mu way too much stuff to get done. Listen, you're completely right, actually. You want to know why? Because you are not God. God is the only one who gets his work done every day. Everyone else goes to bed at night with things unfinished. Laundry in the hamper. Dishes in the sink. Homework not quite done. Deals that need to be worked out. Relationships that need to be mended. So here's what's interesting. So when the Christian rests from their work on Sunday, it shows that we really believe the gospel. See, though our work is important, it's not ultimate. God is the only one who's ultimate. And when we rest, we are trusting the God who never sleeps or slumbers, that he's the one always working, always renewing, always restoring, always extending his kingdom to the ends of the earth. He's the one who's gonna make all things new, not us. We get to participate in it right now, but our efforts don't bring in the kingdom. Jesus brings the kingdom. Why does this matter to us? Your ability to rest and worship God is a barometer to how well you are actually believing the gospel. When you struggle to rest, you struggle to really trust the work of Christ on your behalf. It was Augustine who said in the first pages of his confessions that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. What does that mean? Your career is an awful savior. You work all the way through, through college and you finally get that position and oh, you're gonna throw yourself into it and it doesn't matter about relationship, doesn't matter about how much church I miss, doesn't matter about community. You're worshiping your work. And it will never save you. When we become consumed with our work, whatever that might be, even church work, we lose sight of Jesus's finished work on our behalf. When we spurn rest, we spurn grace and reject God's gift. For many of us, we are working so hard because we're trying to justify our existence to ourselves, to our parents, to our friends, to the world, or maybe even to God himself. We're trying to build a great resume that we can bring before the great throne of God and say, look what I did, look what I accomplished. Wasn't I good? Will you accept me now? That's rejecting the gospel. Jesus did all the work to save you. 
We bring nothing but our sins and he gives us his righteousness. That's what we're justified by. Listen, laziness is a sin, but so is restlessness. It's a failure to believe Jesus' last words. It is finished. I am saved. I am justified. I can rest. One of the most beautiful fruits of the gospel in the life of the Christian is rest. So what does this look like in real life? Well, for me, it looks a little different, obviously, because I work on Sundays. So what do I do? I work five days a week on my job, doing here, writing sermons, counseling people, leading, doing all the stuff I do at the church. And then on Saturday, what do I, I already told you what I did on my Saturday, mostly work, but it's fun work. It's a housework around the house. But then on Fridays, I take Fridays as my Sabbath. And so I rest on Fridays. What does that mean, you rest? Well, usually it means I sleep in a little. I read for pleasure. I work out. I go ride my bike. I take my wife out on a date. I enjoy my kids. I go for walks. I recreate with my mind on God and do what restores my soul as acts of worship to him. Now, it's weird. I'm closing. I figure that gives me at least 10 minutes. <clears throat> and this is weird and totally counterintuitive, but the writer in Hebrews Hebrews is about entering into God's rest and resting from our works by faith. But the Hebrew says this, chapter four. It says this about the Sabbath rest. Strive to enter that rest. Strive. Work hard to enter that rest. What does that mean? For me, it means because I try to justify myself by my good deeds and my hard work, it's more difficult for me to shut off my phone and relax than it is for me to study, work, and counsel. I drive my wife and kids crazy when I have nothing to do. It's raining outside, so I can't go ride my bike. I just start wandering around the house, looking in the refrigerator like my hope's gonna be found there next time. <laughs> She's like, you've looked in there six times. Nothing's changing. Would you sit down and rest? I have to work hard at resting. I have to rest on purpose. I have to strive to enter God's rest by faith. What does that mean? I have to, in those moments, I have to go, you know what? I just want to justify myself in this moment. I'm going to prove to the world that I'm busy and I'm successful and I got people to call and people to disciple and things to do that I'm a go-getter. I'm whatever all the new hashtags are, right? I'm that. Rise and grind. That's me. But what do I need? I need to work hard at believing the gospel in this moment. Jesus, the work of my justification has been finished in your death and resurrection, and now I rest and worship you in this moment. I'm showing the watching world that Christians rest as a fruit of the gospel. So, are you like me? You're a striver? You're striving, Solomon says, is like chasing the wind. You will never be done. Listen to me, Christian. God calls us to rest 
in the midst of unfinished projects, messy kitchens, and half-completed to-do lists. We don't rest because we got it done. We rest because it's Sunday. This is the Lord's day. And we rest and we worship God. God has given this weekly rhythm to us all. Six days we work, one day we rest. We work hard to create and enjoy good Christian culture six days a week, and we also take time to rest, recreate, and worship God on Sunday. The rest points backward to creation, God's rest at creation, and points forward to our ultimate rest in heaven and the new heavens and new earth in the future. The gospel changes everything. How we work and create culture and how we rest. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for such a comprehensive gospel that's just not for some little segment of my heart, but wants to transform my entire soul and my entire life for our good and your glory. Jesus, I want a city that looks more like your kingdom. I want an education system that looks more like your kingdom, a justice system that looks more like your kingdom, families that look more like your kingdom employees and employers and entrepreneurs and business owners. And I want us to live our faith seven days a week as worship unto you. But I also want people who can lay the work down and rest and worship you on Sunday morning. Would you make us into people like that? Know how to work hard and make good culture and know how to rest well and enjoy you in the midst of it. Father, we, we thank you for giving us the sacraments of baptism, but also the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We can come and renew our covenant with you as culture makers, culture shapers in your world. We can turn from our sin and repent of that sin, how we've consumed ungodly culture, how we've maybe created ungodly culture, unchristian cultures. And we want to renew ourselves to creating good Christian culture again. And we don't do that because we're awesome. We do that because you have saved us by your death and resurrection. The night that you betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it. You said, this is my body broken for you. We eat it and remember that work. You took the cup and you said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant shed to cover all of our sins. Drink it and remember. We drink it and remember today. We thank you for the work of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.